is a Monday, which means nothing to the macabre man-thing, to a creature who cannot reason, who barely notices the passing of seasons, let alone the days and nights. But Monday is a wash day for Maybell Tork, who despite all reason, lives here, in this tiny hovel, amid the brooding shadows of the swamp. Hello everyone and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide to the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of a 70s swamp-based monster comic. Today on the program, Man-Thing number 9, Death Watch. Hey everyone, Paul here from the future. You were just listening to Paul from the past. Actually, I guess from your perspective, this is all Paul from the past, but this is Paul from the future past, and in a moment you'll be listening to Paul from the past past. (laughs) And this is also apparently Paul using third person, which I will stop doing right now. Anyway, the bulk of this episode was recorded a little over a week ago, and since that time there has been an announcement about the introduction of a, of a new character called Manslaughter. Now, this is a Weapon X version of Man-Thing with uh, guns and stuff. Uh, I have feelings on this, and I'm going to address them in the next episode. I just want to jump in here and let everyone know yet that, yes, I did see this, and oh boy, there is a lot to unpack. Again, I'll do that next time. So until then... Back to your regularly scheduled program, already in progress. This is part one of a two-part story. That's a bit of a ghost story. Now, my plan here is to release episodes on issues 9 and 10, respectively, the week of Halloween. Um, That's the week of Halloween 2019. So there will be back-to-back episodes for the first time in this podcast's history. This is new for me. It's exciting. Is this a new leaf to be turned, perhaps? A new direction for the show? Doubt it. I know me. Uh, and, I, and a man's got to know his limitations. But the thing is, the reason I mention this is that they might be a little bit shorter than usual. I don't have a lot of preamble banter to fill the time. Or a pre-ramble banter. Am I right? Anyway, I'm going to go go straight into the topic and then the synopsis without much ado. And hopefully that will fill the 30-minute runtime. If not, I'm sorry. But as a consolation, it's free. <laughs> So let's get started. Hazy-eyed, his stooped, sullen form dripping murk and mire, he stares at her, trying to understand. And through eyes dimmed by age and cataracts, she stares back, wordless, incredulous. It was not his intent, if a creature who cannot think can have intent, to frighten her. Stories about possession became extremely popular in the 1970s. Typically, this was of the demonic persuasion. There were other ways to be possessed, but nine times out of ten, if someone was possessed, there was a demon involved somewhere along the line. And I do want to point out that I'm talking about fictitious possessions. There were cases, some very tragic cases, of a person who was thought to be possessed in real life and didn't always work out in the best of ways. But that's another topic entirely. What I'm focusing on here is fiction, movies, TV, novels, and comics. As I said, these kinds of stories were very, very popular at the time. And there's one really obvious reason for this, which I'll get to in a moment, but I think there was a deeper reason why these stories resonated with the public at the time, at least in the United States. A subconscious, I don't know, zeitgeist that made it click with people at that particular moment. Now, the obvious reason why the popularity of possession-based media was popular, and this can be summed up in one movie title, The Exorcist. The Exorcist was a 1973 film directed by William Friedkin, 
and written by William Peter Blatty, who also wrote the novel on which the film is based. It's one of the scariest things I've ever seen. Pretty much destroyed any chance of me sleeping through the night for a little over a decade. The film follows the story of Reagan McNeil, a 12-year-old girl living with her actress mother in Georgetown as she, the mother, films a movie. To pass the time, Reagan plays with a Ouija board and unknowingly summons a demon that she calls Captain Howdy. Terror ensues. Eventually, a priest, Father Karras, is called in to perform an exorcism, and various scenes that scarred my youth and haunt me to this day occur. It's a good movie. It was unlike anything anyone had ever seen at the time. It opened in December to a limited release, and huge lines of people queued up in bad weather to see it. It was really a phenomenon. Some viewers claimed to have severe physical reactions, like fainting or vomiting, and some were said to have heart attacks or even miscarriages, but those were probably exaggerations or publicity. The Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease, which is a thing apparently, reported several cases of cinematic neurosis triggered by the film. Cinematic neurosis is the, quote, development of anxiety, somatic responses, disassociation, and even psychotic symptoms after watching a film, end quote. And yeah, I think that's legit. It's pretty damn scary. Anyway, the film did incredibly well. It became the first horror film to be nominated for an Academy Award, ten of them in fact, and it's widely considered to be one of the greatest horror films of all time. Obviously, after this kind of success, there was a mad rush to replicate it. There were knockoffs and ripoffs galore. Some were made with big budgets, and some were made with $5 and a can of pea soup. But all were, for the most part, popular. Some examples of the knockoff films were things like Beyond the Door and The Possessed, which are straight-up imitators. There is, of course, The Omen, which takes a different take on it, but tries to up the stakes by going from demon to devil. And as the decade progressed, the genre, if you want to call it that, expanded to include many variations. Abby, the story of a woman possessed, is a blaxploitation version of The Exorcist. The car is about a possessed car. It really, it's a, it's a possessed car. And the whole decade ended with the Amityville Horror, which is a possessed house. And there are dozens more. And those are just the films. I'm not even mentioning the novels and the TV episodes in, of various programs based on The Exorcist or Possession. There is one show in particular, I think, everyone should track down and watch. It's called Kolchak, the Night Stalker, with Darren McGavin. While it's not specifically about demonic possession per se, it is in fact awesome. So, just a public service announcement on my part. So that explains the popularity as far as, as, far as the entertainment industry is concerned. Of course, if something does popular, you want to imitate it and recreate that popularity in some way. But there's something bigger going on, I think. So why did this resonate with audiences at the time? I mean, there were possession movies in the 80s and 90s, and that didn't kick off a whole subgenre for half a decade. Why in the mid to late 70s did this just click with people? And I think it had to do with politics. Hold on, hold on. Stay with me, don't roll your eyes. Let me just make my point, and you can leave me angry comments later. You see, at the same time as The Exorcist was in theaters, Watergate was coming to light. So if you don't know, and... I don't know how that's possible, but if you don't, the Watergate scandal was when then-sitting President Richard Nixon had his people break into the offices of the Democratic National Committee in order to get dirt on his opponents. In the investigations that followed, it was revealed that Nixon, in addition to lying quite a bit, was also abusing his power, doing, among other things, bugging offices of rivals and using the FBI, the CIA, and the IRS all as weapons against those rivals. And it turns out 
Nixon was a bad guy. But here's the thing. This really shook the confidence of the United States public. Up until that point, people really did believe in their government. Even if you didn't like the guy in office, even if you disagreed with his politics or policies, it could at least be counted on that everyone's best interest was being taken into consideration. Whether this was true or not was beside the point. People believed it to be true. I can give you uh, an anecdotal example. My grandfather loved FDR, Franklin Roosevelt. He was a big fan. And he told me once that during the Depression and later the war, he knew, not thought, mind you, he knew that everything was going to be okay because the government was looking out for him. And this belief was strong, and it carried over even through the McCarthy era, the backlash against the civil rights movement in Vietnam. In general, people trusted the government. They might not have always agreed with the government, but they trusted it. With Watergate, that illusion was shattered forever. The thing you thought was protecting you, the thing you thought was good and pure, was actually trying to hurt you. There was evil inside. Now, I don't think that people at the time, you know, scratched their chin and said, golly, this motion picture about demonic possession really does reflect my innermost fears and puts a symbolic veneer on my existential dread of losing faith in the organizations of power that control my life. But I do think it does, if nothing else, on a subconscious level, reflect that fear and discontent people were feeling. This was a, a tumultuous time. The old ways were changing. New ideas were being introduced. There was war. There was environmental disaster, energy shortages, social unrest. People looked to the grand organizations for leadership and guidance, and they found something not so groovy. Possession served as a metaphor for the unease people felt about their world and their institutions. It can't be that what I believed is wrong. It had to be corrupted somehow, invaded. And if only someone could come along and exercise that corruption, everything would be okay again. Everything would be holy again. When you look at these stories, the possession stories, at least the ones at the time, there's usually a person of authority, typically a priest, that comes to do the exorcism. Catholics were really big in the 70s. That's a, it's another topic that needs to be discussed at some point. And, and again, typically there's a skeptic, someone who doesn't believe that the demon is real. But that parental figure, the, the father, is there to reassure them. He had the tools, he had the skills, he had God on his side. And with just a little bit of faith, everything could be made right again. Now, I don't think that the disillusion in the political climate is the only reason that possession movies were popular in the 70s, but I do think it played a part. And think about it. Isn't it a coincidence that possession movies started to get popular again in the 2000s? I'm going to take a quick break, and when I come back, I'm going to talk about how Steve Gerber used possession in the pages of Man-Thing. Adventures into the unknown. Tales from the crypt. Skeleton hand. The haunt of fear. The vault of horror. Adventures into terror. Strange tales. Uncanny tales. Journey into mystery. The house of secrets. The house of mystery. The phantom stranger. Doctor Thirteen. Doorway to nightmare. The Witching Hour. Strange Suspense Stories. Worlds of Fear. Chamber of Chills. Terror Tales. The Beyond. Tomb of Terror. Weird War Tales. The Twilight Zone. 
Creepy. Dark Shadows. Vampirella. The Haunted Tank. The Heap. Eerie. Swamp Thing. Weird Mysteries. Tomb of Dracula. Tales of the Unexpected. Werewolf by Night. The Demon. Man Thing. Monster of Frankenstein. Brother Voodoo. The Son of Satan. Night Force. The Living Mummy. The Sandman. Tomb of Darkness. Evil Ernie. Saga of the Swamp Thing. Flinch. Hellblazer. Thirty Days of Night. Preacher. The Walking Dead. What do these titles have in common? All of them. From Adventures into the Unknown, to Tales from the Crypt, to the House of Mystery, to the Tomb of Dracula, may be found in the Long Box of Darkness. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me every Monday night for a journey into comic book horror as we delve into the secrets of the Long Box of Darkness. So listen if you dare, puny mortals, to the Long Box of Darkness, available on Stitcher, iTunes, and Podbean. And check out the blog at www.longboxofdarkness.com. Good night, and pleasant screams. <laughs>Thing number nine, Death Watch. Cover dated September 1974. It was written by Steve Gerber, art by Mike Plug, inked by Frank Chiramonte, colored by Linda Lessman, lettered by John Costanza, edited by Roy Thomas. Deep in the swamp. Man-Thing is drawn to an old hovel where Maybelle Torque is doing her washing and being very unkind to a sweet old hound dog. Man-Thing inadvertently scares the crap out of her and causes a heart attack. Maybelle's husband, Zeke, comes a-rushing out the house to protect her, claiming he's never in 20 years in the swamp ever seen anything like the Man-Thing before. Apparently, Zeke doesn't get out much. Well, Zeke puts Maybelle in bed and sets off across the water into town to get a doctor. Man-Thing clandestinely follows. Meanwhile, back at the hovel, Maybelle very reluctantly dies. Over on the swamp boat, Zeke is attacked by a tree that suddenly comes to life. Man-Thing steps in to help. After a prolonged fight, Man-Thing prevails, but the suddenly living tree explodes into a puff of red vapor. That red vapor then enters into an alligator that promptly attacks Zeke. Man-Thing steps in again to snap the gator's back. Again, the vapor leaves the body. This time, it enters into the skeletons of escapees from a chain gang lying half buried in the mud. The skeletons come to life and, you guessed it, attack Zeke. 
Again, the Man-Thing protects him. But in the ensuing fight, Zeke is choked out and left unconscious, his motionless body lying limp in Man-Thing's arms, his hound dog dog howling discontent as the red vapor enters into a dozen giant snakes. Eyes bulging, fingers clutching at the mud, Ezekiel draws in what is certain to be his last breath. But even before he can exhale, the uncanny foe is smashed to bits. Still, Zeke's eyes do not open. There comes no movement to signal that life still dwells within him. But that has not stopped the crimson mist from spreading to the snakes. Wow, this was a fun one. This is just a simple, straightforward story. No complications, no nefarious plots, no diabolical plans or machinations of evil businessmen or corrupt wizards. It's just a ghost story in the swamp. Boy, that's refreshing. First off, though, I have questions. If Zeke and Maybell have been living in the swamp for 20 years, how could they possibly have not seen anything like Man-Thing? Or Man-Thing, for that matter. Remember, this is a place with an aim base, a laboratory, an airfield construction company, conquistadors with a fort housing the Fountain of Youth, a Native American tribe, and more than one underground cult and various demons. Yeah, I'm thinking Zeke's not that observant. But that aside, like I said, this is a nice, simple story. Uh, it's a road trip, well, a swamp trip, separated out into some nifty set pieces. Man-Thing fights a tree, Man-Thing fights a gator, Man-Thing fights a reanimated skeleton, all realized beautifully by Plug's art. The tree, for instance, has this nasty old man willow feel, and it only becomes more dangerous when Man-Thing pulls it out of its roots and sets it in the water. And we get to see Man-Thing underwater in the gator fight. There are some really great panels of Man-Thing swimming and the gator rushing up towards Zeke's boat and Zeke in the water and Man-Thing ripping the gator's or pulling the gator's mouth open. It's all very well done. And the back snapping of the gator is brutal, but I gotta admit, it's pretty cool looking. He holds it over his head, and there's big red letters, snap. It really reminds you just how strong Manny is. And come on, the reanimated skeletons. If you don't like that, you're not breathing. I mean, just picture Man-Thing in a Ray Harryhausen film. That's just plain old cool. And of course, the through line is the ghost, or entity, or spirit, whatever you want to call it. And we assume it's the spirit of Maybell because she's pretty nasty and she dies just before the weirdness starts. But it's not directly stated, so we can't jump to conclusions. And Gerber likes to do misdirects, so we don't know if it's Maybell's ghost. Spoiler, it's Maybell's ghost. And that's what and that's what really makes this story more than just a collection of set pieces, and that's it's that it's the Zeke's running commentary about his life and about uh, his relationship with Maybell. It's comedic, and, and his dialect is over the top. <laughs> like, okay, like when he sees Vapor leave the gator, he says, Ain't never seen a day gator smoke before. There's something mighty particular happening here, and I'm pretty dang sure it's happening because somebody wants me out the way. But who? I ain't got no enemies. Heck, I ain't got no friends. He's basically Gomer Pyle in a Daniel Boone outfit. But that's what makes this fun. He's... <laughs> He's kind of sweet in his own ridiculous way. When Zeke leaves to go find the doctor, Maybell, of course, yells at him and yells at the dog, who's named Dog, 
That's D-A-W-G, dog. But he yells back, Don't fret, woman. I'll be back just as soon as I can. Shucks, Maybell. I may not like you much, but I still love you. They obviously have a strange relationship, but in a bizarre way, it seems tender. And the whole thing ends on a really kind of ripping cliffhanger, just surrounded by giant snakes in the swamp. I mean, that's, you know, if you're going to have a cliffhanger, it's not a bad one to have. So why is Maybell's ghost possessing these things and, and attacking Zeke? Why is her spirit not at rest? And why is it so antagonistic towards Zeke, who seems to genuinely care about her? Well, to get the answers to that, you'll have to tune in next time for the conclusion of the story. Nobody dies forever. Okay, thank you everyone for listening, and remember, part two will be coming out in just a couple of days. Feel free to yell at me for talking about politics, or let me know what else you thought about the program by going to the website, nexusofallrealities.com, and leave a comment on individual episodes, or go to Twitter, at Nexus of All, if you like to use shorter sentences. Uh, also, I've tried a couple new things on this episode, including uh, the addition of some uh, reading some text from the comic with effects on it, and... Let me know if that's working for you or if it's distracting. I thought it sounded cool, but, you know, I will bow to the will of the people. And again, uh, not much more to say other than thank you, as always, for listening. And uh, I guess just keep it swampy. Bye, everybody. You've been listening to The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elf production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. The show can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you head on over and leave a review, I'd appreciate it, and I'll be your best friend. You can contact the show via email at nexus at daddyelk.com or online at nexusofallrealities.com and leave a comment on individual episodes. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at nexusofall. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained?